That was written by a woman named Amy Young. If you want to look that up later, it's just a beautiful way to acknowledge the mothers in our midst and the wide continuum that there is this morning. So to transition a little bit, I want to share with you a Mother's Day story. Last year, my grandmother passed away. She was in her early 90s. And and coming up on Mother's Day, it was a good reminder of some of the stories we told at her funeral and some of the things that we celebrated. It it became, uh, this should not only be celebrated at a funeral, at a celebration of life service, but we could also do that. And so in that process, a year ago, I called up my living grandmother uh, on the other side of the family, and I interviewed her and asked her to tell me about her life. It was very interesting, uh, some of the details that she gave me, additional details that I didn't know, and then other parts of maybe her life story that I was certain went this way, and I would have shared that with my kids, and it just was entirely fabricated. It was not her life at all, and I gave her a lot of credit for stuff she had no business, uh, she wasn't involved with at all, or blamed her for things that she had no business doing either. But this is her story. This is my grandmother, Sonia. Uh, She married Ben Glazner in 1957. Uh, Her first daughter was born, Debbie, in 1958. There were seven kids born in nine years. Here are their names. Debbie, Rick, Donna, Dawn, Mike, Nick, and Randy. All of them were born within nine years. My mom is the fourth. Her name is Dawn. She's the fourth in the family. And so uh, what she wanted me to share with you is on Mother's Day, she said, you will know, moms you will, or uh, wives, you will know you have a good man by how he treats his mother. And so she, she should have seen it coming. Uh, alcohol and physical and emotional abuse progressively got worse and worse over time with Ben Glazner. At times, she, my grandmother, uh, considered committing suicide, but was scared for her kids. What would happen if she was no longer there to be the barrier between him and them? It came a point where she could no longer protect the kids, and my grandma knew that she had to get out. They separated in 1975. Grandma and the kids moved into her mother's home, my great-grandmother, and they made it work for a while in separate homes in the area uh, without getting lawyers involved. They had a relationship they were able to kind of figure it out without uh, lawyers getting in in the situation. Then one day, uh, she came home after a day at work, and uh, her husband, Ben, Uh, He had taken the three youngest boys, left a note. Uh, He had picked them up from school, left a note, and took them to Florida, uh, where he he was from. And so he had taken the three youngest boys, and it was gone. Just overnight, out of the the seven kids, three of them, he just took them, and they were gone. And so that was in 1975. So they had been married for almost 20 years at that point. She didn't know what to do. She met with a lawyer. The best plan that she could figure out that she and the lawyer had put together was she had planned to drive down to Florida. She was going to wait for the kids after school, uh, flag them down before they got on the school bus, throw them in the car, and hightail it for New York. Because once she crossed back into New York State, uh, the lawyer and the law could protect her to take care of the kids. But the the current situation, because they had never uh, set up any type of arrangement previous to that, she had no authority to do anything. And so that was the plan that she was making. Uh, And when in January 1976, uh, she got word from a family friend who lived there in Florida that uh, her husband, Ben, while driving home from work, he and his passenger in the car as they crossed over a railroad tracks, were hit by a train and killed. And so now, this is the situation that she's in. She's in New York. She has four kids. She's got three boys who are in Florida. And uh, they have just found out that their father was killed by a train. Now, what is she supposed to do? 
We live in a chaotic world. Uh, her story, although it's years past now, is not much different from many people's stories around us. Many of you may have a similar story here this morning. We, we live in an oppressed, dangerous world a lot of times, and there's a lot more hurting people around us than you and I want to consider. In fact, I think in some ways God almost protects us from that because we would be so overwhelmed when you look at things from a global perspective, uh, it would be so difficult for us to handle. But from time to time, it's important for us to take a moment to sit back and realize uh, the broad scope of what is really going on in the world. You know that the population of the United States only makes up 4% of the world's population. 4%. And so when we get all bent out of shape about what's happening here in the States, you need to realize how much bigger the scope is of, of what we are really dealing with. David Platt's a pastor and an author And he says this, I think it's very important for us to catch a hold of. According to the most liberal of estimates, approximately one-third of the world is Christian. That's the very best we could possibly do. Likely not all of them are followers of Christ. But even if we assume that to be true and that they are, that still leaves 4.5 billion people who, if the gospel is true, at this moment are separated from God and in their sin and will spend eternity in hell. 4.5 billion people. Globally, it's mind-numbing how many people are are looking for so many different ways and they're they're trying to find all the paths that they can possibly find to God. They really do think that there's a, a number of ways to get to God. Not only that, but if we take a step back and just look at the world around us, we are living in an imploded society. Not an imploding, but really it's an imploded society. And we need to come to grips with that. And if it's not here in the U.S. that you've got to look at, open up your scope a little bit and see the reality of the situation. Economically, globally, we're not doing so hot. We're damaged. Politically, my goodness. We're, you know, open your eyes, pay attention. The, the fact that when we go to the polls this fall, that we will be making an election choice between Hillary or Trump, it's, it's really, you have to decide, you have to see that we are no longer in a Christian culture. The, the, the society has imploded, and you will have to make that decision and know what to do. But we can no longer point fingers at Europe as to what they are dealing with. For instance, they just elected this week, uh, was sworn into office, the British, uh, he's a Muslim, Sadi Khan, was, was sworn in as the mayor of London uh, this week. When those electorates, when they went, those Christians that lived in that area, when they went to the polls, they had to decide what they were going to do. They didn't have a Christian candidate. What are we going to do? You have to come to grips that we are no longer living in a Christian culture. The society has already imploded. The American church is an imploded religious context. So what do we do? Do we give up? Do we just start living for ourselves? Never. Absolutely not. We cannot do that. Faithfulness is doing the work that God has laid out for us to do. What we should be reminded of is how important our lives are. How important and how significant it is for you to have an impact. Your life is a light. It's a city on a hill. It's the only chance for this world. Do you get that? The responsibility you have as a Christ follower. It's, it's the hope in the midst of reality. Not in the midst of la-la land. Not in some wonderful place that we've set up. But no, in the midst of reality. Jesus has made a promise that he will not change regardless of what happens in this world. Your life is more important in chaos than it would be in comfort. Your life is more important in chaos than it would be in comfort. The greater the confusion and the conflict, the more valuable your life is. 
the crazier that this world gets, the more important it is for you to be a Christ follower and you to be in that context. <clears throat> now we come to the book of Ephesians. We spent, this is the sixth week we've been in this book. We're in chapter three this week. Ephesus was full of problems. Uh, if you were a subject in the Roman Empire, you were, you were really in a mess. There, there was no way that you were going to be in that situation. You had all kinds of issues. You had the government was after you. You were trying to live in this paradox of the world that you would have to live in. Paul would understand very clearly the context that we live in today. Paul would be right at home in this context. He would know and understand what it's like to have all of this turmoil to be around us. In fact, if we flip the script the other way, what we really see is what Ephesus was learning and what the book of Ephesians talks about has every bit of application for us today. What we've already seen in this God's Plan series is that we've worked through these first three chapters is God has done some incredible things on your behalf and on mine. Because why? Because we are in Jesus Christ. We have heard that again and again. We are in Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to understand just how miraculous what Jesus has done really is. The scope is so much bigger than we really give him credit for. And ultimately, as you look at history, as you look at what was going on there, there's an accumulation, accumulation of what God has done all the way back from the Garden of Eden. He has made this accumulation towards the progression of God moving towards the end, moving towards what he has in store, and we are making steps in that direction. At the same time, God has a wrath against you and against me because we are born with a sin nature. On every continent and every nation and every community, every zip code, we see the unique brushstroke of God as he is painting on this canvas and allowing us to be part of this story. God created the church. The church would be the residency of the Holy Spirit. The temple would no longer be necessary. God put Jesus, he put Jesus and the Gentiles together so that he could reconcile Jews and Gentiles one to another. He put death, the hostility that existed between those two. He said it is no longer worth talking about. He's actually killed off the hostility that between those, that they might be what? Unified. The genius of God is displayed in every individual, even in this room, as that beautiful stroke, that paintbrush stroke of who God is. This is amazing grace that we get to be part of the story Paul in the beginning of chapter 3 starts to, to start a prayer then he pauses if you've got in chapter 3 verse 1 there's a dash in that verse where he he starts to talk about what he wants to pray about and then he stops and he goes into this discussion about the Gentiles he says I want you to remember what's going on here and then he comes back and so that's where we are this morning we are coming back. He's going to finish uh, with, with his prayer uh, for the church in Ephesus, uh, but it's very applicable to us today. He's going to give us five sequential progressive principles. If you're going to ever let verse 20 understand what is going to change in your life in verse 20, spoiler alert, in verse 20, he talks about we could do more than you could ask or imagine, but we've got to get there first. We'll get there this morning. This is a 2,000-year-old letter. But it's God-breathed and it will speak to you and to me this morning because it speaks directly to where we're at. So the first principle, Father God is sovereign. Father God is sovereign. If you have in your bulletins, we have an ability for you to take notes. We've got some fill-ins here to, to help you out with that. Father God is sovereign. This is kind of like the ignition switch. It's kind of like turning on the engine. 
the book of Ephesians, in particular the first part of this book, is sort of building uh, the engine. It's kind of building uh, Christian resources. It's like the car with the most powerful engine under the hood that you've ever seen. Uh, it's described for us, this powerful moving machine that would be so incredible. Uh, it's been described for us in the first three chapters. And then later, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we kind of get the roadmap of where you would point this beautiful machine and, and where you would send it and what it's going to do. But right now, today, you have to get to the point where you put the keys in the ignition. Uh, those of you or maybe you press that start button in your ignition. This is, this is the start. You've got to put it in gear and you've got to move it. This is the life of a believer that catapults him from what he knows into who he is becoming. He can do that through the power of God. Father God is sovereign. Let me explain. Verse 14. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 15. For whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He is over everything. When I take my proper position before the Lord, who has, he has created me, and I, and I put myself in front of the Creator, it changes my whole concept of, and puts myself in humility before God. It changes the whole concept of the way that things lay out. That's not a threat. It's a promise. When God says uh, He is over everything, that is that's an important piece for you and I to understand. Why? Because this seemingly messed up world is His. It's His. It's not yours and it's not mine. And since He created it and He's going to uh, reconcile it unto Himself, then He is the one who is responsible to fix it. Not you and not me. All the families who have come and gone from this earth are all from the same fatherhood. When we see that uh, they're the family that is put together because they are all made in what? The likeness of God. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, the whole concept of fatherhood starts with God Himself, the one who created all things. The things that are most important for us in our human existence all come from the fact that God the Father has created you and has created me and created all humankind. Who am I? That's a big question that we ask. Who am I? You belong to me, is what God says. I created you. Why do I exist? to have the image of God represented in your life. That's why. Because He created you to do that. Father, that term, should be a comfort to you and to me. And whatever damaged version of that word that you have experienced, uh, whatever damaged version of that word that you have produced in yourself, men, Father is supposed to be and has been emulated for us perfectly what it means to be God the Father. Father God is sovereign. That's the ignition switch. That second step of the simple progression is Father God gives extravagantly. Father God gives extravagantly. Verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit to your inner being. Out of that sovereignty that we just talked about, He gives everything, and He gives specifically to who? To His children, to you and to me. The limitless riches and the supply, the source of all this power He gives to His children, and as He grants something to us, the focus of all that God has at His resources, He pours into us through the power of our inner being, through the Holy Spirit. In the Marine Corps, we call, uh, the, this is a term that we use there a lot. The intestinal fortitude. You ever heard that before? You've got intestinal fortitude. It's defined as courage, the endurance to go on. 
a marathon runner, has extreme intestinal fortitude. Anyone who, raise your hand if you've run a marathon in here before. All right, there's a few of you, right? I've run a half marathon. There's a lot more to go after that. Some of you have the intestinal fortitude to go on. It takes a lot to push through and to do that. What God is giving us, we're strengthened through the power to have that intestinal fortitude, to have that inner being through the Holy Spirit to press on, to drive us forward. He's given extravagantly. He's got all the resources of heaven, and that's what he is giving to you and to me, the ability, the power to go on. That's what he gives to you and to me through the power of his spirit to your inner being, giving you the ability to go forward. Father God gives extravagantly. That leads us to the third step in this simple progression. Stay rooted in his immeasurable love. Stay rooted in his immeasurable love. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, (coughs) and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Our task is to stay rooted, to drive down deep into that bedrock that we may have the strength to comprehend the length, the height, and the breadth. If you've read Paul's writings, Paul doesn't ever seem to run out of words to say. But here in this passage, he just kind of seems to come to an end where he can't really describe what he's trying to get a hold of. And so I says, as, as, as high as I can see, as far as I can look ahead, as, as far down as I can drill, it's, a, it's, it's bigger than that. It's farther than that. It's beyond what I can even describe. I don't have the right words to say it. He's got a loss of words to describe God's love. Fridays are my day off for the most part. We had a great day Friday. It was a beautiful day. We were out in the patio in the backyard and just working, kind of doing some spring cleaning. I was working on uh, building this thing. It's going to make our patio look amazing. It's going to be the most exciting thing that's ever happened. And... uh, and it was just a beautiful day to be out there. Uh, Aaron, we, we, we've got toys. Parents, you've got toys. You've got stuff. And, of course, uh, the kids play with the cardboard box. They don't play with the toys. And in our backyard, uh, they've got trampoline they can jump on. They've got a slide they can slide up and down. But the best thing that we can seem to give them are, like, leaves and sticks. And they bang them together. And they, they literally set up. Uh, my oldest daughter was standing up on the top of the slide. And she got a stick. And she was conducting. Uh, my other kids were standing in front of her, one with a, a piece of firewood and a cross piece so that she could play a violin. And then Maya, our youngest girl, she was playing a hoe. She, she was blowing in the side of it and doing something and stomping on it. And she'd always stomp on it and it hit herself in the face. And It was a good day. It was just a family day. And I don't know if we got anything accomplished, but it was just a good day. And we talk about that. Aaron and I were talking about that evening. We got to go out on a date that night and just go out to dinner like... That's where the difference between a house and a home comes into play. A home is a place where you rest, where you abide, where you stay. This is our home, and it doesn't matter what happens. We're just here together, and this is our home. What we see here in this passage is what what God is telling us to do is, is to abide here, to stay here, make your home here. Stay here. Our job is to receive the ultimate gift of humanity. We just need to abide in that. Look at what God has given you. Just just wrap your arms around that and stay there. Hold on to that. 
That love is tremendous. Dig in deep. This type of agape or sacrificial love that has been given on the behalf of another. Something we talk about, we do our best to describe it. Really, even in the English language, we don't even have the right words to kind of talk about what the sacrificial love looks like. We rarely ever see it in our context. The idea of just giving of yourself to someone else. So I want to jump back into the story of my grandmother, if that's all right. The man that I call Grandpa, his name is Chuck Swain. He was a friend of the family. He was also a divorcee. He had an alcohol problem. He owned a bar. He had just come through rehab. He had gotten in a terrible accident with his car. He had nearly lost his hands. He's got uh, something like 20 surgeries all in his hands uh, to, to give him some mobility back. If you've ever seen him public speaking, he now is a, uh, runs, he's a president of a large construction firm, you know, large enough where when 9-11 happened, they offered to fix the Pentagon for free, like that type of thing. Uh, he, his fingers are all gnarled up, but he can drive and he can swing a golf club. And, but every time that he is doing a presentation, uh, he points with his middle finger, so it's kind of an awkward thing for uh, some people. But that's my grandfather. He had been through this uh, situation. He had heard about... Uh, this, this woman, Sonia, heard her story. He's a friend of the family. He went to his boss on hearing the news that Ben Glazer had been hit by a train and had been killed. He borrowed $200 from his boss and immediately put Sonia on a plane and sent her to Florida. Over time, they began dating. His sister, Mary Jo, who he calls one of those religious people, she led Sonia to the Lord, and then in time, she led Chuck as well. To Jesus. My grandmother pointed out to me, said, Chuck Swain always treated his mother good. They got married. My grandfather assumed all of her baggage, all of her pain, all of her divorce, all of the drama that had been in her life, and all that went with it. And that was all those kids as well. One of the things that they laid down early on, and he said it, and he said it often, I've heard him say it many times since, these are our kids so she had seven and he had two and they immediately had nine kids that they had to deal with. And, and they raised that family together. There are 22 grandchildren. There are 17 great-grandchildren. Three of us are church planters, uh, pastors. The vast majority of all of them are actively pursuing hard after God. It's a beautiful story that has been redeemed. The, the grim story that I started out with, it's been redeemed, not because my grandfather is something special about him, but it's just not very common for someone to just sacrificially give of themselves in that way. It's only a shadow. It's only a small portion. It's only a very glimmer, a tiny amount of what the greater extent is when we try to comprehend the scope and the idea of what the boundaries of God's love really are. They are so much larger than that. We can't even find the edge of its limits. Paul couldn't even describe to you how it went. Can't even find the edge of the limits of God's love for you and for me. It's kind of like jazz. Some people like jazz. Some people don't like jazz. Someone asked, uh, and this was someone who didn't like jazz. They asked Louis Armstrong, who's a famous jazz trumpeter. He said, explain jazz to me. And he kind of, he replied this way, man, if I got to explain it to you, you ain't got it. That's how it is. <laughs> With love, if someone has to explain it to you, you ain't got it. 
But if you got it, you can't explain it. That's what the depth of the love of Jesus is. So stay rooted in his immeasurable love. That leads us to the fourth point. God is able to do abundantly more. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And all this crescendos over us. He wants us to realize that God is able to do a lot more than we ever thought it to. Now it does not give us permission to name and claim. This is a heresy, and this verse is taken way out of context, way too often. Heresy is a belief or an opinion contrary to Christian doctrine, and it is being taught in churches, and I just need to stop here and just clarify this for a moment. This is not what is being taught here. We have not become equal to God. We do not have the authority. We're not able to go out and dominate the earth because we have any power in ourselves. We only have the authority to do anything because of the cross and because of the resurrection. We cannot distort what it means to be living in the likeness of God. That battle will go on forever between the new man and the old man. That is always a constant rub back and forth. That's why this body has to die. This body will never be able to emanate the righteousness and glory of God. We will never be able to do that in this life. That is why one day we will obtain a new body in Jesus Christ. We're able to count on the fact that God goes out ahead of us. He goes in front of us doing a lot more than you and I will ever really grasp. And God views us as instruments. He views us that have been given to us to do what? To sacrificially give that love to others just as he has given to us. Ultimately, we become conduits of his grace. What's a conduit? That's a transportation tunnel from one to the other. That is our responsibility. We are conduits of his grace, his mercy, and his assets to others, and it's all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have not been given the right to name what is going to happen. Don't expect that your fleshly heart would ever know what to ask for or never know, ever know what to point towards. God is able to do abundantly, abundantly more because of who he is. As you come through that particular path and you arrive at a place where you're filled with the fullness of God, you'll see if things occur in your life beyond what you could have ever imagined. And when trials you have come through, all of a sudden you have strength, strength that you did not know was there. And some of you have gone through some really difficult times in your life and you just don't realize how strong the power of God really is until you walk through some of those things. When trials come, when ministry opportunities come, you'll have strength and power in ministry that you never knew were there. And you would say, why would God do all of this? Why would God do all of this? Because the church is eternally important. Verse 21, the church is eternally important. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The church is this accumulation of people and stories that, that are all put together of the, how God is working in your life and how he has called us out to sacrifice ourselves for the world, to be this conduit. And you bring all of us together. We have this unique expression of that mercy. What is happening here in, in western New York is different than what's happening anywhere else in the world. It is specific. It is unique. And you and I get to be a part of that because God has put his stamp on your life and on mine. So that through him will be the glory for what? Forever and ever. Amen. 
What is happening here on a Sunday? What is happening here midweek? What is happening here in Western New York has eternal significance forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. This is what God has called us to. This is the glory at all of its apex through His Son, Jesus. The glory of God is fulfilling itself and is filling the gap for its entirety, for its entirety through the church. The church is this action that God has put in place for those who belong to Him. It's not a place. It's not a location. It's not a building. It's an action. The church is, is what God has called us to do and to be. And for this reason... We bow our knees because God has allowed us to be part of that. The church is eternally important. So this morning, that ignition switch, to turn that ignition switch, to fire off what God has for your life, for mine, and for this church, it's a matter of prayer. It's a matter for you to be in prayer about, for me to be in prayer about. What is it that God has for you? How do I connect to what God has already put in place? So I ask you to do three things this week, this morning. Pray for the presence of God in your life. Remember at a starting point, as Paul is talking through this, he is saying, I'd bow my knee. The first part of this passage is all very personal. And then the next part of the passage, you start seeing him using words like us and we and together. But in the first part, before we can get anywhere like that, we have to start with you and your relationship, asking God, will you bring your presence into my life? Secondly, pray for the presence of God in our church. If you have a collection of believers gathered together who are all on mission together, they've all been asking that question all week long. God, what does intimacy with the Father look like? What does it look like if I'm connected to you? What does it look like if we all come together with a group of people all pursuing hard after Him? It changes the storyline tremendously. And the church starts to have an impact that is far greater than one hour on a Sunday morning. Thirdly, praying for the presence of God in our community. God, what are you already up to in this neighborhood? What areas have people already spent months and years praying for that you will just give us clear vision to go into those areas because the fields are white into the harvest? Let us go there. God, don't let us waste our time doing things that make no eternal significance. You have called us as a church to, to live on forever and ever and ever. Let us be important and focused in on what you have for us to do. I don't want to waste my time doing something else. And again, if each of us has that connectivity to God, and as a, as a church we were praying for God, where should we go? What should we do? And now we take steps in doing that. Prayer is the ignition that turns the, you turn the switch for what God has for us and for you specifically. So much so that we've decided to set the next trajectory of where we're going as a church to spend a four-week series in prayer. And you can, the, the, these are tags, it's called the prayer series. Uh, we've got cards that are out in the back uh, at the information table and over by the, the coffee station as well. Uh, all they say, it says the prayer series on the front and it says on the back, you're invited. And we'd love for you to be able to share those with some, some other people. Because we believe as we are moving through this season as a church, or we are looking at what our next steps are as a church, we have to be in prayer. We have to be in prayer. And we're going to dig in deep here for a few weeks 
and see what it is because in all that we have here in Ephesians, as it's rolling itself out, we can see that God has got plans far greater than we could ever imagine. God, allow us to see what our piece of that puzzle is. So as the band comes this morning, they're going to come and, and they're going to lead in this last song as a, as a response to the message this morning. I'm going to go to the back. I'll stand in the back. I try to do that each week so that as the band is singing, your attention is focused forward. If you've got something specific that you need to deal with God this morning, that I can be there and be able to talk you with you through that. That God is working on your heart. You, no one's looking at you. Everyone's looking forward. But we can have an opportunity to talk through some of these things. Because as I'm describing this, you might say, well, that sounds good for someone who seems to be connected to God. We can talk about that. How do I connect to Jesus? Because having that connection to Jesus is, is really the conduit by which all of this begins. And if I miss that this morning, I would miss the whole point of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. It's all through Jesus. In Jesus Christ comes up again and again and again here in this book of Ephesians. Lord, we pray for this morning. As we go into a season of prayer as a church, Lord, let it not be a season that ends by any means. Lord, let this be a launching point, an ignition for what you have for us, for where you want us to go as a church and who you want us to be as individuals. Lord, I pray that we would connect to you. And, and you're the God, the creator of all the universe. We are the created. We have to start by bending and bowing our knee before you, bowing our heads. Lord, what is it that you have for us to do? It's your responsibility, God. We put our trust in you that you will make things clear. And then, Lord, we pray that you will give boldness to each of us as, as you make that clear and clear on a personal level, as a corporate level, as a church, even in the community, Lord, as you make that clear, give us the boldness to step out. Let this morning be that for someone here. Lord, let them step out, let them come back and speak to me and, and, and see what it really means to connect with Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would pierce this morning and divide. Lord, it is a cleansing thing. We thank you so much for who you are. For this Mother's Day, we thank you for those who are here this morning as mothers and the, the rest, as we talked about earlier, that it affects. Lord, I pray this would be a very special day and a special time as a church for us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?